everyone, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Today we're talking to Tim Price, the one and only legend. Um, and uh, I met Tim last year. I had the privilege of uh, speaking to him and Paul Rodriguez on the State of the Markets podcast, which I actually really like. I, I wanted to tell you, I recently listened to your Zen in Trading with uh, Peter Castle, I believe. That's correct. Oh, okay, good. I'm like, did I remember his name right? Um, but yeah, he, uh, I like, I like how you guys all talked about your different strategies, you know, and I was laughing thinking of like my crazy, you know, like when you were saying George Soros's son, uh, basically, you know, has like a, a pain in his back, you know, like a physical, um, kind of reaction to certain trades, you know? Yeah. Manifestation of, of market angst. I can feel that too. And I almost, I get really, um, because I'm not really a trader, so I'm not pretending, but um, <laughs> there's plenty of times where I'll jump into a coin and then I'm like, no, that's not right. I just go get more XRP, go buy silver, buy gold. You know, like the things that I know, because, you know, it, it like, you know, it does affect your mental state. And if you don't have complete control of your emotions, um, you know, like I always joke with Vicky, I'm like, you know, some people eat when they're anxious, I will start drunk trading. I mean, not even being drunk, but just, you know, it's like crazy trades, um, that many times I end up having to call Vicky where I'm like, look at the charts. <laughs> what did I do? Help me, you know, um, to get, you know, but like, I, I love listening to that because your, your, uh, podcast on the Zen and I love, uh, I love your, what you guys do there with the state of the markets. Thank you. That was my intro for you. That's, that's most kind. So that reminds so that reminds me of I'm trying to think desperately of the the, the fund house in question, and it, it escapes me. It may come back to me. I have a lousy memory due to years of alcohol abuse. But the there's a, there's a value value shop. We're, we're value managers, and there's a value value house in the states. And someone once said, you know, it's really funny. I come to you guys, and when I go to other brokers. I can tell from the the mood on the floor whether the market's you know down or whether it's up. When I come to see you guys, I can't even tell if the market's open or not. And that's that's certainly the the attitude we want to convey, which is there is the market, which is just noise, and then there's just buying you know, buying decent things, and they're not the same thing at all. Yeah, I think I think ultimately, I mean, in investment terms, you, you get what you want out of the market, and I'm lazy, slovenly all of these bad characteristics. So I'm a value investor and I, I try not to trade at all. We, we're kind of like anyone that goes to our website, which is pricevaluepartners.com, will we'll find that we are. The name Benjamin Graham is spattered around like, I don't know what, but basically th this guy is the, the uh, spiritual father of genuine value investing. And it's not complicated stuff. It's basically just buy good stuff and don't overpay for it. End of story. It's not, it's not rocket surgery. Well, that's awesome to hear. Um, we, we run, since I've spoken to you last, I've kind of built out this community where I take a little, you know, a bit, not as a financial advisor, um, but just you kind of teaching the basics um, of, you know, real money. And Vicky was, I found her like, you know, a few years ago now, and she, you know, had a little bit more technical uh, background and was lo looking at things. And so we kind of kind of united on this whole 
the economy is resetting. There is mm -hmm. going to be this, you know, back to the future in a cryptocurrency kind of way. I still believe everything even more with more conviction around uh, precious metals, the use of precious metals and the interoperability, uh, interoperability of those blockchains that I mentioned last year with you, mm. um, XRP being one of them. But I guess one of the things that I love uh, about the way you speak is you have this very professional, you know, legit value asset, you know, like you just stated, people come to you um, you know, with that kind of reassurance of investing in quality and value, um, you know, but then you also have this great voice on Twitter. And when Twitter took that away, I mean, as stupid as Twitter is, really, it, it just, it, it, it seemed like, wait a minute, this guy, I mean, I loved your tweets. <laughs> I love you. how you spoke, you know, no nonsense approach. So I know that we've got uh, loads to ask you about, you um, you know, people had a few questions around mortgages and selling their house and all this, but I just have to ask first and foremost, because I didn't get a chance last year when we, uh, when we spoke, when did you become red pilled? What was that light bulb moment for you? And how did you, you know, gain the courage or, you know, knowledge, I guess, to just start speaking out? Because so, so That's a really good question. So I, I'm going to give uh, credit to a number of people because I don't think it's any one inciting event it's probably several and several several people's input so as, as you've already kindly alluded so with, with a friend paul rodriguez i do a roughly fortnightly once a fortnight podcast called the state of the markets and that basically is just a chance for paul who's a technical analyst and me a value investor to chew the fat and we normally invariably have an invited guest and that could be anybody from any any sphere so we've had all kinds of people on uh including your, your own good self and we're, we're happy to have anyone. We just like to chat about, you know, chew the fat and talk about you know, market trends and, and whatnot. And so the people I would credit in no particular order, that some of them as a direct result of being sort of happily exposed to them on the podcast, one of them would be um, Chris McIntosh, who's a hedge fund manager, I think based in New Zealand now, but he's, he, he sort of covers the, he's sort of notionally based in Asia. But I think, I'd give Chris the he, he, people on Twitter, he, people who are still on Twitter, unlike me, can find him. Uh, Capitalist Exploits is the name of his blog, and I think Cap Capitalist X or CapEx is is Twitter handleable. You, you can you can check this. Um, Chris is the first person I would credit for having introduced me to the phrase "a controlled demolition of the Western economic system." <laughs> And although although that sounded absurd at the time, I think that's literally what we're living through. So what is happening in the world, what is happening in global economic terms, what is happening in global financial market terms is no accident. This is all happening, I think, and I think Chris thinks by design, and maybe you think by design. Absolutely. This is, this is no accident. Uh, this, this, isn't, this was no boating accident. Um, and who else would I, I credit? One of the other people I would credit is, is, a, is a direct result of having chatted to him on the podcast is, his name's now flown out of my, uh, Nick Hudson. Nick Hudson is a South African guy who's an actuary by background. And he, I think, heads up or is certainly seniorly involved in something called pandemic data and analysis in South Africa or Panda. And basically chatting to Nick in the late summer of 2020 confirmed my suspicions that 
let's just say all all is not you know so there is something rotten in the state of Denmark about these this this whole supposed vaccine and the whole supposed pandemic. And a, a quick shout out. This is a very long answer. So I hope you're braced for. I can do this for another ten hours. There's another guy I would credit, a Reiner Fulmick, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Sure. And I, and I came across Reiner Fulmick relatively early on in proceedings, who is seemingly conducting almost like a one-man commission in preparation for the, the the sort of war crimes, crimes against humanity tribunals to come. But like mm. there's a public record of, of 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 what has happened and who the guilty people are, and so echoing Rhino Fulmick's conclusions, I would state in, in as much, I mean, a lot of the, the, the medical stuff is above my pay grade because I'm just a fund manager, but um, I, would, I would echo his conclusion, which is we, we have not lived through two years of a pandemic. We have lived through two years of a PCR false positive pseudo epidemic. Yeah, his big thing is the tests. We were on a call and he does talk, I mean, he's very focused on the test. He's also really focused about going into the court system to expose the courts and how corrupt they are. And, you know, and he was, cause he was actually asked about that. Like, why are you basically filing in this courts or banks, you know, this whole kind of corrupt system. And he was very resilient on the fact that we just have to keep pushing back. You understand mm-hmm. every we could create a paper trail and this is all the due diligence we have to do it this way and this is the legal process for which most people are accustomed to mm. uh, and i thought that was really interesting but yeah i mean he's he's the real deal i've heard him speak um on the medical doctors for COVID ethics calls uh and he's really passionate about i mean about there's, there's there's plenty more i mean there's dr david martin who i'd, I'd also um say strikes me as definitely being one of the good guys and the guy who i i, I probably should have started with first because i noticed he put out a piece on substack earlier today and he's someone i'd i'd like i don't know if you've spoken to him but i'd like to get him on our podcast is uh, michael p sanger but basically michael sanger is this actually i credit where credit's due my reading michael in the tablet which i picked up on the time when i was still on twitter back in uh, again late summer 2020 Michael Sanger is, I think, a tax attorney based in Dallas. So naturally, in terms of a, a global alleged pseudo epidemic, a tax attorney in Dallas is the first place you go to for, for, for advice. But um, Michael Sanger put out a piece called something like lockdowns are a communist Chinese Communist Party psyops. And I came across this piece and it's very well argued and it's thoroughly researched and everything's accredited. And I would suggest, I, I, and I can state, it probably took me three or four days to accept the validity of that argument. So going back, rewinding back the clock all the way to sort of the start of 2020 and these sort of early clips on social media of Chinese people seemingly falling down dead in the street, which we now know was a complete farce, which was a complete hoax. And then a sort of invasion of bots onto social media, advising the whole world to lock down because it worked so well in Wuhan. Michael Sanger sort of uh, forensically addressed that issue and suggested, strongly suggested it was basically all garbage. But it took time to process because basically it's, it's a slow yawning realization that everything we've been told pretty much for all our lives was complete nonsense. And that mm-hmm. process of accepting that 
is a hard process and many people have not even started out on that journey yet. So when you, you tweet things like, you know, all these criminals are going to hang, like you really do believe. Oh, I, I, I don't have a shadow of that. I mean, uh, it's like Martin, I'm not, not, not wishing to sound grandiose. Maybe like Martin is thinking, I may, I may not make it. I may not make it to the other side of this journey, but whoever does survive, they have to see this through to the bitter end. It is, it, it is clear in my mind that we are living through essentially World War Three. We are living through an experience of profound evil. We are living through an experience where a motley conglomerate of sovereign interests, almost certainly, and specifically the Chinese Communist Party, I would, I would identify as the sort of the 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 go-to malefactor in this process, but sovereign interests and undoubtedly corporate interests. And I think we all know, you know pretty much we will have a very strong suspicion who the guilty parties are. So there's no need to name them. Catherine Austin Fitz calls them Mr. Global. I, I refer to them as Davos man. But basically, there are bad actors at place. They may or may not be directly responsible for the, the nonsense, the shenanigans that are going on. But if they're not directly responsible, they are surely capitalizing and exploiting them. And it's profoundly wrong. It's profoundly evil. It's, it, it's strange that it's ironic. I, I used to have conversations with, with clients and I talk about how the fact that, you know, there's lucky generations and there's unlucky generations. So I'm, I'm 53. I uh, was born in 1969. I, I sort of, as a, as a kid went through the, obviously I'm British, uh, as a kid went through the, the sort of the, the winter of discontent in the late seventies uh, and sort of barely, barely was aware of, of the sort of the, the social problems of the seventies in the UK and the economic problems that, that afflicted the world. But in terms of my, my sort of teenage experience, went to school, went to a decent school, went to a good university, in my case, Oxford, read English. And then and not only that, I, my degree was paid for by the local education authority. So it didn't cost me directly or my family anything. And then at the end of that experience, got a job in the city, not my first choice, but it's, I, I took what I could get in the early 90s and then um, was able to get a foot on the housing ladder. All, all of those things are basically now impossible or extremely remotely possible for, say, people, people who are sort of late teens or leaving school now. So I would consider myself part of a lucky generation. My parents uh, were born just before the war, the Second World War. They were born in Manchester. They were blitzed in the, in, in the war. They had a, a traumatic childhood. And then they had to experience rationing in the 50s. So that was clearly not a, a, an auspicious start. But thereafter, they enjoyed decent economic growth, jobs, raised a family, bought a property. They're now retired. Both my parents are both still alive. They're now retired. And one of them has an index-linked pension. And I'd say on balance probably a lucky generation despite their sort of wartime experiences but now i look at someone let's say either at school or or coming into what and now they have to think really seriously about universities it involves taking on so much debt and i'm thinking we're the best one in the world you know firstly they have to decide whether they want to take on 40k 50k worth of debt that's going to take them half a lifetime to pay back 
once they've finished their probably worthless degree, they then need to think about, you know, what job do they get? And a job's going to be more difficult for them than it certainly was for me. And then at the end of that process, do they get a foot on the housing ladder? Well, at current, at current prices, property prices, no. So compared to, compared to my uh, experience, this is, you know, the, the, the cohort of this sort of the millennial cohort is an unlucky generation. Yeah, I mean, I didn't take the traditional university route. I left after a year of A-levels. I went to do a few jobs and then I retrained um, as a teacher while I was working in prisons and I was paid to do my teaching degree. So I was very lucky that route. And it's something I really advocate for uh, is the vocational side of it, because what we found and I've been working with universities at the moment is you can study a sports degree a sports science degree, but you can't actually get a job within the physical sports arena because you don't have a personal training qualification, which is vocationally based and you have to work with people on the ground floor. And this is what I've seen. Obviously, I'm 41. So a lot of my friends um, had an easier access into university uh, and then came out with no experience. Great high level qualifications but couldn't get any work and ended up stacking I know a, somebody who was training up to the bar who ended up stacking shelves in Waitrose because she just couldn't get any work experience because it was just flooded you know um, and things like that so I think that the shift with vocational training is a huge one at the moment I know we've talked about this Jennifer as well obviously with your hacker house and that kind of technical training my son's already looking at um an internship and uh, an apprenticeship route as opposed to the traditional university uh in order to get the work experience because it's going to be a harder market to get into and employers will look for that experience over just a piece of paper and spending four years accumulating the debt as you say you know the the young people now have got to really look at it hard and fast um as to what is going to benefit them and it is the 50 50 on that I mean, we get asked quite a lot to have whether we can take on into there's only four of us in the company so it's, we're a tiny sort of boutique firm but we're we'll try where we can but the, the advice i would give to anybody that and this is obviously in financial services but i think it it can probably be related to a broader sphere the advice i'd give to anybody is it, I, i've worked in capital markets all my adult life so I've, I've been in the markets for over 30 years now and it's the only full-time professional job that i know so I can talk about other things, but this is this is this is mi barrio, so to speak. And the advice I'd give to anybody is, well, you know, in, in the context of the city specifically, but just in 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 any kind of professional realm, just get a foot in the door. If, if my experience in the city is any guide, um, people don't stick around for that long necessarily in their first job. So the first job is not the be all and end all. It's just a, it's just a, a stepping stone. So by hook or by crook, just try and get uh, a foot in the door. You know, use all the contacts, use all the networks, do whatever you can. And if need be, don't even necessarily pursue a, a job to say, look, find people how, however you may. Use use all the, you know, the, the the network effects that you can. And then just say, look, can, will you take will you take me on as an unpaid intern, or can we just chat over a coffee over how over what the state of the market is, um, and take it from there. So, I think if you want it to happen enough, it'll happen. But I'm also mind to think that it's going to be more difficult now than it was, say, for me 30 years ago. What brought you into finance 30 years ago? 
It's a very good question. So I, I read English at Oxford, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So I've got no regrets whatsoever about pursuing that. And then I'd intended to go into either journalism or advertising after my degree. And needless to say, neither of those options happened. One of one of them, apart from my innate, you know, unsuitability for either of those professions, was the fact that in '91, when I came onto the job market, was a recession year, and so I had the 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 good luck to have an older brother that always wanted to work in the city. So my brother had read economics at Cambridge. So he was destined to to, to go into the the, the markets. And he just said to me, you know, after a few years already in the job, he said, look, I know you're looking at sort of media related things, but don't discount the city because A, it's good fun and interesting and B, the pay is pretty good, both of which are to, to give him his due correct. So in addition to all of the sort of failed applications I made to uh, newspapers and ad agencies, I also included a few city banks, and one of them was dumb enough to harm me, which was a, a Japanese bank that I won't name. It was a company called Mitsui Taiyo Kobe International. Um, and basically, I, I joined, uh, so I started out in 91 as a bonds, as a generalist bond salesman. And it, despite not even knowing what a bond was at the time I took the job, uh, which probably says a lot about city recruitment practices. And nevertheless, did quite enjoy it. So my brother was right on that score. It is quite an, an entertaining way of earning a living and also quite a lucrative one. And and frankly, never looked back. But in, in my defense, pretty much from day one, I sort of incorporated writing about the markets as part of my shtick. So I've always enjoyed writing uh, and I, I still I enjoy writing now. So I was able to sort of crowbar an interest in, let's say, something minorly creative into the day job. So I was able to sort of have my cake and eat it. Uh, but that's how I got in. So I, I spent about 10 years as a bond salesman, got increasingly bored of the bond market, which is very easy to do. And then around 98, 99, I was working at Merrill Lynch at the time in London, transferred from Merrill Lynch Institutional, which was fixed income markets, to Merrill Lynch Private Banking, which is basically the sky's the limit. You can do everything in, in the private banking world. And so about 20 odd years ago, I moved. To, to private client for management and then the scales really fell from my eyes so if anyone is interested in the the way the city works the, the 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 job i would most recommend would be something connected with private client wealth management or fund management because the institutional world is basically uh, extremely siloed it's extremely narrow and pres prescriptive in the private client arena you can do pretty much anything realistically that you want that obviously makes sense and is legal so you might be a generalist bond salesman, for example, and you can sell government debt or corporate debt or floating rate debt or emerging market debt or, or structured products or whatever. But if you operate within the private client world, you can not just, in, you can not just consider the relevance of debt or credit product, but you can also consider listed equities, private equity, hedge funds, currencies, commodities. It's just, it's, it's like moving from monochrome black and white into technicolor. And I've been doing that ever since. Tim, now in the last few years or since 2020, when your friend said the controlled demolition of the economy, essentially, um, are you seeing everything you've learned over the last 30 years take a change? I mean, are you watching patterns? What was what kind of was the ultimate dot connecting for you to say, OK, they're going to do something here 
Um, you know, and, and what are your thoughts? I mean, do you think we're coming to a collapse of fiat? Oh, I, I, I don't have a shadow of a doubt that, that that's that's on the way. My colleague uh, at the business, my colleague and business partner, Killian Connolly, has studied this stuff. He's done, he's done um, like, uh, he, he did like a, a postgraduate degree at the London School of Economics, which was, I think, largely involved in the, the topic of um, financial system regime change. So and this was some years, some years ago now, we've been working together for, I think, just over a decade, about 12 years together. Um, so we're like uh, Statler and Waldorf or whatever out of the Muppets by now. But um, he, he points out that basically monetary systems change all the time. So it, they're not necessarily something to be afraid of. Um, so for, for anyone listening from a non-financial background the last time the global monetary system changed was in 1971 when president nixon took the dollar off gold so previously the the dollar had been backed by gold and then every other currency had effectively sort of fallen into line but through the twin effects of the cost of the vietnam war and the sort of uh, basically the welfare the welfare state um that was that was rapidly rapidly uh, metastasizing in the U.S. Uh, that became impossible for the U.S. to the U.S. government to afford. So the link between the dollar and gold was severed in in seventy one, the Nixon gold shock, as it was called. So then, since seventy one, we've had a a global monetary system that's not been tethered to anything. So you've had all these currencies freely floating, bobbing about, or 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 being tossed and heaved in the you know, in the maelstrom of, of, of the sort of global economy. And the problem with a, a monetary system that's not backed by anything tangible is that it, it leads politicians to overspend because they can always cover the gap by borrowing. So it's no surprise that since 71, the debts accumulated by governments, corporates as well, and also households, but specifically governments have 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 ballooned out of all possible control and i think whatever whatever we're now experiencing the the fundamental problem was always going to was always going to arise which is if you accept the central argument that the world is drowning in debt which certainly would be my thesis there can only be three ways of attempting to right the ship one way is that you as a government or a central bank engineer enough economic growth to keep the debt serviced, I'd argue that that's everywhere now impossible. The second way out is that you default on the debt, or if you want to be more polite, you call it a restructuring uh, or a debt jubilee. But th those words uh, might sound flowery and, and pleasant, but they would immediately result in the instantaneous bankruptcy of the global banking and pension industries. So that's not going to happen or not going to happen with any to any to any good outcome. So what's in box number three? What's in box number three has been the 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 box that every heavily indebted government, that is to say, all governments throughout world history. It's the box to which all heavily indebted governments have resorted throughout all of recorded time. And that's inflation. It's a policy of state sanctioned inflationism. And that's what we're living through now. So for anyone thinking that this is the, the current high inflation is the result of the war in Ukraine, that's all bollocks. What is happening is that we're seeing the outcome of a policy of globally state-sanctioned inflationism 
which is designed to wipe the slate clean and prepare for a new monetary system. Now, ideally, that new monetary system will be backed by something tangible, something possibly relating to commodities. I would be delighted if it were backed by gold in some form or silver or combination. And I dare say you'd be happy if it were involved in some form of cryptocurrency backing. And I have no I have no dog in this fight because I believe let a thousand flowers bloom when it comes to currencies. But the bottom line is things going to have to change because the system is bankrupt. The world is bankrupt. Global governments are bankrupt. So the only question is what, what comes next? And if what comes next is central bank digital currencies, we are all, well, we are all effed because that's, that's the end of financial freedom as we know it. And the, the reason I feel so strongly about this is this is I, something I consider home territory. So I've written two books on this topic. The first was in 2015, which is a book called The War on Cash. Clue is in the title. Um, and that's freely available from our website if anyone wants to get it. So if they just go to pricevaluepartners.com, um, if you mooch around, you'll find there is a link to download the PDF of The War on Cash. And I also wrote a book in 2016 called Investing Through the Looking Glass. Uh, which is a puckish satire on contemporary mores. But basically, as a former bond salesman, the bond market is something I consider his home territory, and it's the bond market that's the problem. So during your time selling or being involved with the government bonds and debts and the selling of debt, because obviously as you went through the list within what goes on within the city, it was it's selling this debt, this debt, this debt. There's no kind of positivity. How... I mean, how do I put this? From the 80s, from when we had the last kind of big kind of crash there, I suppose. Have you seen it sped up in regard to the size of the global debt bond market and all of those? Oh, for sure. I mean, one of the reasons, sure, one of the reasons why I sort of abandoned the bond market back in you know the late 90s, I thought this 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 game can't continue much longer. And which shows you how good a forecaster I am because that, that game just sort of accelerated. Um, it went into overdrive in 07, 08, and then we had the sort of global financial crisis. Um, and then since then, the money printing went into overdrive again. So I'm minded to quote, I think it's Voltaire that said that all, all fiat currencies ultimately degrade to their uh, intrinsic value, which is zero. So if you have a monetary system where the currencies aren't backed by anything, given the previously mentioned tendency of politicians to overspend um, because they can always borrow to make good the shortfall for as long as they can do, uh, it's no surprise that that, that uh, privilege is, is exploited to destruction. The only thing that surprises me is that the game's gone on as long as it has done, because I would have expected, if, if my sort of career choice to leave the debt markets and go into private client fund management was, was correct or valid in the late 90s, you... I, yeah, I would have expected the whole debt pyramid to implode around that time. And the reality is we're now here 22 years later and it, it's still going. But it, it, I should say, I should make the point for anyone that's unaware of the, the long term, there's a chart we use in some of our presentations. Interest rates globally are starting to move up from the lowest levels they've been at in all of recorded history. So they're coming up from their lowest levels in 5,000 years. This is particularly important because for those people who are thinking that if you look back at, say, just the last 40 years, so go back, say, to the 80s or so, when Volcker was installed at the Fed, I would argue that Paul Volcker was the last central bank 
the Fed chairman to do anything positive in the role. In other words, he squashed inflation, but he did so by making it extremely difficult for the American economy in the short run. I think he got death threats. There were farmers lobbying outside you know, the, the Federal Reserve. Uh, it was a painful process. So it's before I started in the market, but back in the early 80s, US interest rates were at double digit you know, percentages, 16, 17% levels. And it was tough. And as inflation got squeezed out of the system, that triggered a, a, a rally, firstly, in the bond market, and secondly, in the stock market. And then China entered the scene as part of the WTO. And we had a sort of a golden era, if you like, a halcyon period where everything went up. What has worked, this is the point I'm trying to make, what has worked for the last 40 years is now going into reverse. But it's not just the last 40 years, it's the last X thousand years. So if you think that the future is going to be anything like the last 40 years, then I think you're misguided. So, I mean, we've talked about and brushed on um, the real crash, or the I say the real crash. Uh, it was propped up from 2008. That should have been when the financial system had its kind of collapse or whatever, and, and they sure. were sticking plasters on it because they weren't ready for whatever new monetary system. Uh, we've talked about how the US is very reluctant, obviously, to give up their world reserve status and are dragging this out. Um, inevitably, like they don't want to give up the power, especially when there is the potential of China and all these other great superpowers coming across who are now obviously looking at BRICS and their own kind of economy. Mm. Um, so between 2008 and now, um, we have been, well, up to the COVID, for example, uh, we've been living in a false reality. Everybody thought... Yeah, like a, a, Potemkin, a Potemkin market, a Potemkin village of wealth that never really existed. Yeah, absolutely. And then they knew the inevitable we know they use or hide behind disasters or wars or things in order to justify printing off another hundred billion to send across the water. You know, the Americans are oh, we'll just print that off. You know, everybody's really struggling, can't even pay rent over here in our own country, but we'll send it off over there. Um, the implications for the dollar are going to be huge when this crumbles. What do you think they're going to, to do to try and, I mean, can they remain as this world reserve we've speculated they can't there'll be a single you know under the imf maybe an esdr backed by gold backed by a commodity but how's that going to leave the us it's a really good question so a friend of mine that operates in the hedge fund space has said that the the current strength in the dollar can conceivably be compared to the effect you have when for example when you're on a beach and there's a tsunami and as you may know, as we all kind of know from the, the, the terrible one of, um, I forget the year, but it was, it was about 15, 20 years ago and in Asia when the first thing that happens is the sea, doesn't, the sea doesn't pour in, the sea actually goes out. The sea actually retreats before it then, it then pours over the land. So he, he compared the sort of current strength of the dollar to exactly a kind of sort of pre-tsunami moment where this is a temporary sort of reflex action where people stampede into the dollar because it's the quote safe haven unquote that feels to me to be the right analysis that the U there's nothing sound about the us dollar the only thing the us dollar has going for it is just the it's the least dirty shirt 
Uh, but I don't think it will be the last man standing. I think the dollar gets swept away in, in the fullness of time along with every other fiat. And so if the question were, what currency would I invest in? Then for me, as a value investor, that currency would be gold. It would not be any fiat currency at all. Uh, but in the interim, for however long the interim lasts, which is not known to us, then yeah, the dollar will probably will probably outlive many of the others. But that, that that's not a that's not that's just like saying it'll be the last bit of the wreckage to go below the surface of the the, the water. It, it it's not sustainable. Um, and there's a point I'd make on a political level, which again I I I use this this friend uh, hedge fund friend who I won't name. Um, but basically, he, he he made the point some months back, and it touches on the Ukraine situation. And I thought this was utterly fascinating because I hadn't heard this before until until he told me. Even at the height of the Second World War, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, which is often referred to as the central bank's central bank, the BIS always respected uh, and acknowledged the foreign exchange reserves and foreign assets of the of Germany, of the Nazis. And then you look at what's happened arbitrarily on a whim under the Biden administration, whereby the Biden administration has effectively arbitrarily seized and invalidated Russian foreign reserves on the back of you know, the situation in Ukraine, which I don't you know, condone in any way, necessarily. And you think, we've come a long way. So the... What the 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 Biden sanctions have done, what the sequestration and invalidation of foreign of Russian foreign reserves has done, is they've basically they've basically torpedoed the U.S. has torpedoed itself. So they've created huge energy inflation. They've destroyed the European economy. They've destroyed prospects for you know the global economy. And to whose benefit? Well, not to the benefit of the US. So it looks like the, the, the biggest policy fuck up in history. Now, whether, I can't believe these guys are bright enough to know to do this by you know, deliberate design. So one assumes it was done by accident, but it's, it's a sign of just how far the political leadership of our world has fallen. That you've got these complete jokers and clowns. There's a, you may know it, um, Vicky, there's a comedy in the UK called The Thick of It, which is a political comedy by um, Amanda Iannucci, which is sort of, it's sort of like a, a fly on the wall, so-called fly on the wall sort of documentary about life at number 10 and, and in Whitehall. And there's one specific phrase they use there. I think the, one of the, either the press, you know, the, the press secretary or the, the, the media consultant says, I've just seen, I've just seen, he's talking about one of his colleagues who's just been on something like Question Time and he's been on TV and he's made a complete hash of things. He said, watching that was like watching a clown running through a minefield. A clown running through a minefield is the perfect way to describe the Biden administration. And for that matter, all of the Western administration. So we are at a, a pivotal, potentially pivotal turning point in history we are surrounded by clowns and idiots, and it's quite lamentable to to observe. Tim, what are your thoughts on uh, on you know some of the the agenda behind Brexit? Because there's been a lot of talk around the breaking of the financial system away, um, you know, with with Brexit. What are your you know getting out of the EU? 
Do you have an opinion there? I mean, I was a, a, a passionate Brexiteer, and I still think it's the, the the right thing to have done. There's a guy called Professor uh, Albert Bartlett who died, I think, about probably 20 years ago. He was a professor in, I think, maths, possibly physics, uh, but a, a harder science than something like economics, economics, which is clearly just garbage science, um, at the University of Boulder at Colorado. And there's a presentation presented by... Dr. Albert Bartlett uh, on YouTube, which has had something like 5 million views. It's on the topic of, I think the title is Arithmetic Population and Energy, which doesn't sound very auspicious or interesting, but I can assure you it is. And, ba- and it, it, it's so compelling that I actually approached the university and got them to send me a, a copy of the, the, a hard copy of the, the, the book that, that this is published in. But basically, uh, Albert Bartlett's po- big thing point is that um, mankind's biggest failure is our inability to understand the power of the exponential function, the inability to understand the power of something compounding at a, a, a steady percentage rate over time. Um, and that, uh, to that point, so the point about the debt markets relates firstly, which is that's the reason the world is in trouble, is because politicians for far too long have been able to increase the debt load without wondering about how it's ever going to get paid or get paid back there's another point that Bartlett makes which is and this is practically a verbatim quote so if i've erred in the the context i apologize to the late dr Bartlett, but he basically said for any entity beyond maturity further growth is either obesity or cancer well to your listeners i i humbly submit the european union this is an entity that has grown out of all proportion, out of all relevance. It is now just growing for the sake of growing, um, and it's unfit for purpose. The reason I, I major on this is because it's sort of the seminal event of my career. So the seminal event of my career was shortly after I started work. It's the ERM crisis of uh, September 1992. And for people who, who aren't aware of it or have forgotten the details, in, 19, in the late 1992, sterling was ethnically cleansed from the exchange rate mechanism because we'd entered at the wrong rate. So the UK was in recession. Germany was booming because they'd recently uh, reunified with East and West Germany. So Germany had an inflation problem. We had a deflation problem. We were in, we were in recession, which is pro- possibly one reason why I found it so difficult to get a job. And so uh, sterling, which was never something uh, the ERM was never something advocated by Thatcher but by this stage Thatcher had been dispatched so it was John Major we have to blame for this you know debacle anyhow so sterling sterling's an ERM at the wrong rate and we're putting up interest rates even though that we ought to be putting them down because we're trying to peg to the Deutschmark and basically as, as, as anyone that remembers that period will know we got ejected so we, 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 we got booted out because we couldn't sustain the, the currency peg and I remember there was a publication at the time that said it's as if Norman Lamont, who was a chancellor of the day, it was as if Norman Lamont had spent the afternoon throwing schools and hospitals into the North Sea. So we basically burned billions of pounds in a futile attempt to stay in this exchange rate mechanism, which turned out ultimately to be a good thing, because it then meant we could pursue an independent monetary policy, use our own economic circumstances to guide our interest rate policy. And funnily enough, our economy then boomed, whereas if 
everyone else in Europe, or the Eurozone more specifically, the EU, was sort of nailed into this uh, doomsday machine. I think the uh, you probably saw today that the euro traded below parity to the dollar. The prediction I would make is that the eurozone will collapse. It will ex- collapse or explode, whichever, whichever sort of preferred dramatic way you want to describe it. The eurozone is unfit for purpose. It was never fit for purpose. I, I say this as someone who worked at uh, French bank Paribas in the mid nineties, and we were trading ecu bonds, the precursor to the euro. The problem with the the eurozone as a, as a the e the euro as a as a currency project is was never a plan B. So it's fantastic for bureaucrats to say, well, we'll just you know lash together twenty seven disparate cultures and countries, and sort of have a one size fits all you know interest rate policy and so on. But the reality is that's 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 just completely facile. It's completely naive to think that can happen easily. It takes it would take decades possibly centuries to affect that they tried to do it in a few years they rushed it they had never had a plan b the result is i think that the eurozone is destined to collapse so for me brexit was the most logical thing for the U- for the uk ever to have done and the fact that the media is portraying some of the nonsense we're seeing now as the fallout sure. from brexit as opposed to things like lockdown is just a sign of just how venal and disgusting the legacy media have become I completely echo that. Thank you. And one of the reasons I am fascinated with asking you about this, because, uh, you know, Vicky and I kind of found our voice in this financial space, um, you know, with a little bit of, I mean, we're very, we're with, with crypto definitely, but with a lot of, uh, you know, precious metal emphasis. So we've been walking everyone through, you know, Bretton Woods <laughs> and then 1971 and what I found interesting with that Nixon speech and at the time, it was meant to be a temporary um, come off the gold standard. And then I was- in, I looked, Income tax was introduced as a temporary measure in like 1807 or something. And it's been with us for the last 200 plus years. So there's, yeah. tempor- there's temporary for you. Well, and, and you know, we don't, I mean, that is, that's just like the Patriot Act in the US after 9-11 and the way the security measures went up. And what we're seeing now is like, you keep giving them an inch and they keep taking and taking. And on that note, what I found really interesting later learning, um, well, recently, within the last few years was that when we, we with my English hat on, uh, joined the EU or had the ECC kind of vote in that was around 73. Um, you know, when the UK, they didn't have a referendum to join the EU. It was like the US left gold. Then in 73, the UK kind of joined this, this union, this financial union. And the reason I bring this up is because at Bretton Woods, there was that Bancor theory, that theory of just the justification really of exponential printing and spending and control of the government. And I often wonder, did we come, you know, did everybody just as a result of the war, we ended up with the most gold and wow, that's a discussion in its own, you know, and at the time the dollar was as good as an ounce of gold. So they tried to equalize and stabilize the economy with Bretton Woods going to that gold standard and then conveniently kind of worked out the spending programs where they could, you know, enact this alternative theory, even though, you know, and and kind of slightly take us off temporarily of gold um, and then kind of join this union of, of countries again for what more financial 
gain, right? And so I'd love to know your thoughts and how this might, you know, in economic cycles, you know, seeing this again, you know, we might have a total combustion of the dollar. And then, you know, this, maybe there's a liquidity crisis, and then this kind of injection of another layer of currency. You see where I'm going with that? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not bright enough to work out what, what, what's ahead. All, all I sense is my, my spider, my limited spider sense tells me that, you know, we're in for a whole world of, of hurt. Um, so the, I'm trying to think, as you, as you, as you will know, if you followed any of my commentaries over the years, I have a, a penchant for a number of things, including film references and including cheesy quotes. So I'm going to try and you know, kill two birds with one stone. There's a, a quote from No Country for Old Men, which is a terrific book and a terrific film. And for anyone that doesn't know it, there's a scene relatively early on where uh, there's a, a sheriff and his deputy, they they come across a basically a, there's a valley scene where there's a drug deal gone bad and the, the valley floor is just littered with dead Mexicans and and broken cars and dead dogs and just carnage everywhere. And the, the deputy says, well, this is a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? And the sheriff responds, uh, well, if it ain't a mess, it'll do till a mess gets here. I feel like we're make, we're like, we're stewing in our own mess. I mean, half the battle here is, is getting, you know, people to understand that the banking system that we're in is is by design you know insecure and is runs on me, me, you know messaging protocols that are easy to intercept oh, and I'd, 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 I'd say destined to fail so one of the the very first yeah. probably on like literally page one or page two of uh my book investing through the looking glass which i recommend to everybody is the perfect christmas gift it's fun for all the family Yay. Um, the it, it's a quote actually that i i, I ripped off uh from adam uh, is it Adam Ross Sorkin? Um, anyhow, he is a guy from I think from the New York Times. But um, isn't it Andrew Sorkin? Andrew Sorkin. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting my names confused. It's, I've had a far too many sherbets for this this time of night, so I'm losing losing Thank control you. losing control of my resources. Um, Andrew Sorkin. That's right. And it, basically, he had amazing access to the um, the powers that be in 08. and uh, so it's the quote from the head of jp morgan uh of the weekend so he had a, a jamie diamond had a conference call from his home office on the saturday morning of the weekend that lehman brothers failed and it goes something like uh, members of the board we should be we, we're about to experience one of the most extraordinary periods in american financial history we should be prepared for lehman brothers filing for chapter 11 right, for bankruptcy we should be prepared for uh, Merrill Lynch filing for Chapter 11. We should be prepared for Morgan Stanley filing for Chapter 11. Pause. We should be prefer prepared for Goldman Sachs filing for Chapter 11. And then it just says there was a sharp intake of breath on the other end of the line. Uh, no surprise there. And that, that gets to the heart of the problem, which is the Wall Street should have had uh, basically uh, an existential uh basically uh, an extinction level event in 08 and all right that was the choice that faced the the fed and the the authorities and the government so they could either have let the system fail and then reset but the 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 part they chose to follow was just bail out everybody let lehman fail and then that everyone else gets a bailout courtesy of the american taxpayer and the same effect 
really throughout the rest of the world, including here in the UK. So in a sense, all we're seeing now is basically the chickens of 2008 are now coming home to roost. You can patch over, as I think Vicky said earlier, or perhaps yourself, you can patch over this stuff for a while, but ultimately, you know, the, the piper, you know, the piper needs to be paid. And basically the piper is knocking on the door right now. I remember that, that, uh, you know, uh, meeting that you're speaking about. I, I remember reading it in Too Big to Fail. Um, and no, and that... I, the, one, the, the version I've got of that book has a dinosaur on the front. No, I mean, you can't fault the publishers for really nailing the zeitgeist. Yeah, and it's fascinating because, you know, we, we are, I mean, I remember last year talking about the Balins and kind of being laughed at. Um, and now we're kind of moving towards this. I mean, recently you have supermarkets offering, you know, kind of money to shop there in form of micro loans, you know, and then it'll be like sign up for this ID, create, you know, your account, be issued money. And then suddenly you can see the kind of progression there. Um, I love your, you know, tweets and your voice in that, that, you know, at some point this thing pops and we have to hold these people accountable because, I mean, I say this almost, you know, weekly on our channel where we have, we have to stand up and whatever their plans are, we have to be the pushback. We have to be the ones that stand resilient. Um, but this, this impending doom and gloom of the economy is, is quite daunting. Um, and so I feel like that we're on an education because I, I'll tell you, even with this crazy inflation bill that was just recently passed, I still have moronic friends writing me, telling me what good it's going to create and the money it'll provide and the projects that will get. I mean, I'm just like, are you guys like you don't what? And, uh, you know, and there is this kind of psychosis. These are not dumb people. These are people that, hold, you know, come from very, you know, <laughs> Uh, fancy, you know, backgrounds and have all the degrees and all the kind of remnants of Ivy League education. And I just, I don't understand why um, some people see it and understand gold, you know, and silver, real money. Everything else is by the by. Um, and that, you know, whatever little gains are left in this stock market, really, at some point, this bubble will burst. Derivatives, mortgage-backed securities, I mean, and um, and I love finding people that just don't dance around this, that just speak out how it is, um, which is obviously why we're talking to you today. I mean, I think of, of necessity, the, the, the kind of people that are able to articulate these views are, are not going to be part of the mainstream, because in the same way that you know some people either don't have Twitter accounts or will, be, will carefully vet or will have for them their Twitter account carefully vetted, there are other people that basically are, are not beholden to higher forces or higher powers or third party interests and so you can speak their mind the um the book i would cite in dispatches which is freely available again as a download from the mises website uh www.mises.org m-i-s-e-s.org is a book called 40 centuries of wage and price controls and this is something i talk about with my colleagues i was talking about it with my colleagues earlier today <clears throat> again the clue is in the title so Governments, since since governments were ever a thing, have always tried to set prices and control prices, and it never works because you can't buck the market, as Mr. Thatcher once said. And the the all my all time favorite example of 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 this is 
uh, something called the Edict of Diocletian. So I couldn't tell you exactly when it happened, but I think it's very, very roughly 200 AD or so, but it was during the Roman Empire and probably during the last days of the Roman Empire. And Diocletian was parachuted into office, and by then the empire was already was already suffering terminal stress. So you had the um, you had basically the the Roman soldiery were sort of positioned throughout the borders of the empire, and that, that the, the cost of that alone was basically unsustainable. For years, the 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 Romans had been clipping the coinage; they'd been basically you know diluting their currency, um, debauching their currency by you know, by reducing the amount of silver in the denarius and replacing it with with, with base metal instead. The, the the proverbial hit the fan. So Diocletian, in a desperate attempt to try, try and keep the show on the road, much like the authorities are trying to do now, issued the so-called Edict of Diocletian. And one of the things on this pronouncement was language that said the following, that grain prices will not rise on pain of death. They still went up, which tells you everything you need to know about price controls, which is they don't work. They never work. They never have worked. They never will work. But also that if you attempt to control them, all that happens is you just store up all kinds of problems further down the line. So you're seeing that now in the energy market. And what's what's extraordinary about the, you know, the, the fun and games in the energy market is that this is a an unforced error on the part of particularly the European authorities and notably Germany, who's turned off all their nuclear power stations and now and has basically been sort of poking the Russian bear and has sanctioned Russia and is now perplexed that basically prices are going up and that Putin won't take euros for his oil and gas. He wants rubles or gold instead. Yeah. It's amazing how they Go throw figure. how quick they throw the green bills out the window when they're reviewing reopening their coal plants. Uh, it, it, it's it's um it's unbelievable what we're living through, and uh, I forget when I first heard reference the the, the name Carrie Antoinette in reference to the you know, green green monster at the Boris's side. But if it, if it, if it was sort of amusing <laughs> a few years ago, it's even it's even more uh, amusing and alarming now because uh, I suspect she will end end up with her head on a spike, and she won't be the last. Oh, so much there. I'll send you a message later (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean ask vicky i'm like have to bite my tongue half the time i don't need more lawsuits (laughs) everyone can just get in line um (laughs) (laughs) oh that's hilarious yeah oh my gosh tim you have no idea it's it's insane. I mean, even my friends are like, what the, f-? I mean, like, you know, that, that are still part of that network and in that scene. Um, I get updates on all of that. Uh, um, so I wanted to ask you while we have this, and then I guess we can turn it over, Vicki, for any chat qu- or thread questions that I missed, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Many people are concerned about Obviously, this bubble of the housing, the mortgage-backed securities, this derivative bubble, you know, affecting everything, uh, the domino effect. And, and, you know, when you're buying and selling a house, you know, where, what are your thoughts on that? Is it now a time to just hold tight and, you know, sell and, and put it all in gold, wait till the, you know, collapse happens and then buy? So here, here in Britain, we, we, we are peculiarly affected by this sort of mind bug of obsession with property as the, 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 the one and only asset class. Um, 
the, the thing I would say on this front is that um, firstly, your your primary residence is should not be viewed as an investment. It should be viewed as the inevitable, the, the essential place that you the roof above now your head. So don't don't view it as an investment. I appreciate everyone's used to doing that because property has been a better investment than anything advised by most financial advisors over the last you know, several centuries. But try not to try not to view at least your home as, as something that you, you check the price of every day because that's not that's not what it's for um and it's it's also treated as an asset class but it's not really an asset class because gold is fungible so gold is you know an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold and it's an ounce of gold whether it's here in london or in new york or in tokyo or beijing or wherever and it's you know it's 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 an ounce of gold in space and time etc etc etc. Property is not a fungible market in the same way. So property is very idiosyncratic. Um, I alluded earlier to the fact that I think well we know that interest rates are coming off all time lows. As a bond salesman, it behoves me to to point out the iron rule of finance, which is that if interest rates go up, bond prices go down which is quite straightforward, even for people who don't know the bond market, because a bond is simply a, a, basically a, a series of cash flows, typically of the same percentage. So if you've got a, a bond paying you a 1% coupon every year, if interest rates are at zero, then that 1% is worth something. If, if base rates or policy rates suddenly go up to 3%, then your 1% suddenly looks less attractive. And funnily enough, the price of the bond falls to take that into account. So... If interest rates are going up, bond prices go down. Property, in essence, is a very bond-like investment. In other words, you buy property for the purpose of renting it out to, to try and capitalize it as a sequence of cash flows. It's very like a bond. If interest rates are going up, bond prices go down. If interest rates go up, property prices go down. Now, that isn't to say that good properties in nice areas bought cheaply don't make sense because that clearly does happen. That clearly is is the point, but it's very idiosyncratic. So I wouldn't I wouldn't make a statement about property per se. I'd merely say that uh, now, in the context of interest rates globally, now does not seem to me like a peachy time to be going long real estate. But obviously, there will be plenty of local conditions that uh, that vary from that. And then, what are your what are you advising people to look into then? Precious metals. So in, in terms of what we're doing with our own clients, for example, um, sure. so our clients tend to be pensioners. They tend to be people who, uh, if, they're not, if they're not actually pensioners, then we're dealing with life savings. So we, we, we're regarding this stuff as basically rep, uh, irreplaceable capital, sacred assets. So with that in mind, we typically would say that if people don't have specific requirements for, say, expenditure in the future, say, school fees or a new property purchase or a yacht or whatever, Assuming there's no requirement to make to make payment for new expenditures, then uh, a typical account for us, typical portfolio will be allocated roughly on the following lines. Roughly 40% at the moment will be allocated to what we call value stocks. So listed businesses around the world that are run by principal shareholder-friendly managers, where the shares of those businesses, for whatever reason, can be bought at a discount a meaningful discount to their inherent value cheap quality businesses in other words typically 20 percent of our client portfolios will be allocated to a type of trading strategy known as systematic trend following which is a momentum-based approach um 
it's basically out typically algorithmically done so trend following funds will will only one time mostly be invested in t-bills because there are no trends but as and when they identify strong trends be they up in price or down in price the funds will simply allocate to them and build a position over time for as long as the trend lasts so for example if the price of copper is going up a typical trend following fund will make a small allocation and then for as long as that as long as the price of copper rallies they'll add incrementally to that position but they'll probably also incorporate a stop loss so that if the trend changes that they'll be then taken out of the position they can start in some other area but this works in both ways so that they don't just buy stuff that's going up they also sell what's going down so in 2008 for example the most aggressive trend following fund that we use which i won't name but the most aggressive trend following fund that we use 2008 was the worst year for financial markets in living memory. Most aggressive trend following fund that we used made 108% in 2008. Earlier this year, it was up over 100%. Trend following funds do particular, or can do particularly well during periods of market dislocation. But the main reason we use them is because they are, whatever their returns are going to be, we can state with a degree of confidence or certainty that those returns will be completely uncorrelated to the stock and bond market. The problem with trend following funds is that they're typically configured as hedge funds, which means you can't, they can't be marketed to retail investors. But there are, here, even here in the UK, there are certain trend following funds that are structured as what are called usage funds, which means they're basically onshore and regulated. And they don't have the same high minimum investment requirements that traditional hedge funds do. So... If anyone wants to talk about those, we can do that at a later stage. Um, but trend following funds form typically around 20% of our portfolios. And then the remaining 40% or there or thereabouts will be allocated to what we call real assets. And um, when I say real assets, what I mean is tangible, non-financial things, things that if you drop them on your foot, it hurts. So for us, that's things like gold, silver, and also the shares of gold and silver and commodities businesses generally, if they can be bought with exactly the same value attributes I mentioned earlier, in other words, principal shareholder friendly managers, very cheap, highly cash flow positive, highly cash flow generative. And for whatever reason, we don't really care what the reason might be that for whatever reason, they're trading cheaply in the market. So overall, it's a combination of value stocks, trend following funds, and real assets and no bonds, no, ideally no bonds, no cash, no paper assets whatsoever, for obvious reasons. I see. Well, this sounds, this sounds brilliant. I mean, we get a lot of these questions in our channel, you know, quite a bit. And uh, Vicky and I are quite purists, you know, gold, silver, XRP. (laughs) But um, for those that really do, you know, the pensioners, the 401ks, the investments um, with those with money in the banks that don't really know what to do, um, We'll definitely send them your way. So and that's very kind. The, the problem that, that, that everybody has, everybody has, is that you know, people cling on to this idea that there's, so, there's like low risk assets. And unfortunately, since 2008, there is no low risk. There, there is no low risk out, outcome out there. There's no risk, no low risk option. So everything's risky. But the the big, um, what's the word? The, the big sort of false belief is that volatility and risk are the same thing. But we would define risk very, very straightforwardly as risk is, risk is permanent loss of capital. So risk is basically you're an employee of Lehman Brothers in, in say, summer 2008. And then Lehman 
brothers, September 08 happens, and all of a sudden you don't have a job. And if you've got all your life savings in Lehman stock, you don't have any life savings anymore. And that, now that's risk. But otherwise, the fact that the stock market goes up and it goes down, that's just noise. So where are you, when you when your clients come to you, the breakdown you just gave us, um, you know, between your value assets uh, or your assets you drop on your feet <laughs> and, um, you know, your market, your fund. Do you do also talk about the premium bonds? Um, premium bonds is, is something certainly could, could form part of it. I mean, the discretionary business here for us is, is entirely bespoke. So it can be, it's infinitely tailorable. I mean, I, I own premium bonds myself to my shame. Um, they haven't been the most rewarding part of, of, of things. But for anyone that <clears throat> is unfamiliar with premium bonds, premium bonds are basically bonds that are issued by the UK government. So technically speaking, they're kind of like low risk or riskless, if you believe that the U- UK government will always stand behind its debts, which it hasn't always done. Um, but let's assume that they will do. Um, and they offer you a very low rate of interest, something like 1.5% typically, but it's basically drawn by lottery. So it's not like a, a, a traditional UK government bond or a gilt where you get a pre-specified rate of interest. Here it's done basically by a, a machine called Ernie, an electronic random nu- nu- numerical indication engine or something. That's what Ernie stands for. But it's basically it's a lottery. So it's not, it's not, it, it's a bit more fun in games. It's a bit more like Saturday night at the London Palladium. Um, you're not guaranteed to get a return necessarily. So it's done by more like a, a, a draw than, than by a, a, a preset process. But either way, the other attraction of, of premium bonds or a, an attraction of premium bonds is that every month they pay out to a lucky winner. They pay out a million quid, they pay out a million pounds. And the second attraction of them is that the whatever gains you get from them are tax-free. So they're quite they're quite saucy for higher higher rate taxpayers. But it's it's more it's more at the fun and games spectrum. It's not a I wouldn't call it a serious uh, a serious investment necessarily. And I think the limit on premium bonds for an individual is now I think fifty thousand pounds per person. It's a nice. I, I have some myself. Like to buy grandkids. My two have some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm all for them. So I, I do support them. I'm just saying is I. I I wouldn't. I wouldn't treat them as the bedrock of a portfolio. This is great, Vicky. Do you? Thank you for that. Um, uh, very interesting to finally hear you talk about all of this, uh, Vicky. Are there any questions that I might have missed or anything in the thread? There's only one. I mean, you've picked up pretty much on the housing, good places to invest, ways to look, and obviously we're going to send people to you because that's not we. We're not financial advisors. We are guiders to the right areas of expertise. But Sharon's asked uh, specifically, Tim, what do you think of Tom Luongo's theory that the Fed will not pivot and start QE, but will raise interest rates to squeeze the euro from the West while Putin is squeezing on the oil front? He thinks the Wall Street banks that aren't a part of the global cabal, JP Morgan's, want rid of Davos. And so the Fed will push to ruin the euro is the ECB can't print money the way the Fed and other reserves banks can? It's a really interesting question. And uh, I came across Tom Luongo for the first time a few weeks ago. So I, I, I remember one of his um, speeches or diatribes or whatever you want to call it quite quite vividly. Um, who knows is the answer. So this is, this is one of the many questions that's above my pay grade, sadly. I think ultimately we're in a, an environment where anything could happen. So I... Uh, put it this way, I'm no fan of the euro. I've already indicated I think the whole thing, the whole product is, is going to blow apart anyway, with or without the sort of connivance or the the you know the 
intervention of the Fed in a benign or malign way. So I think the, I think the euro is a, is a, is a dead a dead duck. In terms of Fed policy, that's that's for me is an open question. I I often think about this and put it this way: I mean, my track record on on this stuff is abysmal because I I thought things would blow up on Greenspan's watch, and then Greenspan came and went, and then got replaced by Bernanke, and I thought the system would blow apart on his watch, and then he got replaced by you know, who was it that little old biddy, and then she got replaced by uh, Powell, Jerome Powell. So my track record of of Forecasting the death of the U.S. financial system and the Federal Reserve specifically is is not good. So I wouldn't I wouldn't dare to think what what might happen. And also these as you can appreciate these are also political decisions. They're not just economic uh, because you're into the world of geopolitics now. Uh, that that said, um, I liked I know I was intrigued and liked what I heard from Longo the last time I heard him. So he's someone I've been watching for a while, but I, I can't comment because I, I literally don't have a view. I think one thing we've been watching very closely, Jennifer, isn't it, especially in the group, has been the rise over the last, well, I think it's since 2015, since they've started, of the BRICS nations. And the fact they seem to be mopping up a lot of the countries who have faced sanctions from the US and who uh, ultimately weaponized the dollar against them to uh, ensure that they uh, comply, I suppose. And, and where it could leave us in the West with the establishment of a second economic system whereby the countries involved are pretty asset rich when it comes to gold and silver accumulation and and, and commodities as well and other Massively, commodities. exactly we're going to be knocking on the door we've managed to ship production and stop production here for for infinite things you know um and we, we'd have to go right back down to basics. And there's a real threat that we could be knocking on a whole new economy begging to be let in. For sure. And I, I think, I mean, there's this phrase, the Great Reset. I, I'm minded to believe now that the Great Reset will happen, but it won't be the Great Reset that anyone thought it was going to be. It's going to be a Great Reset that effectively uh, punishes the West and that effectively reorientates the emerging, so-called emerging markets in a way that profoundly is, is a real game changer for certainly the, the status quo for the last 40, 50 years. I mean, there's a definite question when the IMF allowed, you know, China to come into the, to the central baskets really of currency, almost trying to bring, you know, it's better to be friends with your enemy than uh, leaving them outside. Well, I think, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier the whole idea that you, know, you have monetary resets and they happen all the time and they do so monetary systems do change. And that's not necessarily something to be afraid of mm. um, in the same way, uh, and, and I don't mean this at, at all to disparage American um, listeners, but the thing that one of the most profound things I've experienced over the last few years has been, I used to think of, let's say, the government of America as our friend, and now I do not have that uh, view anymore. And so the idea that we're shifting from a unipolar world to a multipolar world that incorporates not just a perhaps declining US, but also a, a, a resurgent China, and as you say, some of the other BRIC powers as well. I don't think that's necessarily something to be afraid of. I think that's probably something to be welcomed. For the rest of us, but obviously the imposition on the US's stance as the global number one. Well, yeah, are they going to give it up? Yeah, I mean, em empires, empires rise, empires fall, you know, live with it. Exactly. 
Other than that, Jennifer, that's we covered everything. So I'm not going to re-ask questions that I know we have covered. Thank you to everybody who sent in the questions. Um, you would have heard your answer within the discussions over the last hour or so. If I haven't answered your questions, I do weddings, bar mitzvahs, funerals. Oh, there was one more. Are you going to start a Telegram <laughs> channel? Actually, I do lie. I did see that. You've just reminded me. Will you start a Telegram? How can people find you? I've got... You know, we will make sure we put links to everything, all your podcasts and everything you've recommended to go and read and things like that on, on here. So tragically, I got I got booted off Twitter, but I'm, I'm, I'm still on uh, Getter and uh, True okay. Social, so you can find me there. Fabulous. We'll make sure your handles are there for everybody to find. Or thank find you. you. And thank you for the invitation to your channel, Jennifer. Yes, of course. I'm very thrilled to have you. Thank you for coming on. I mean, I, I love how outspoken you are. And one of the things that I keep saying to many of the doctors that I'm talking to and encouraging to continue to speak out is that whatever their plans are, we are that pushback because the, you know, like you said, it, you know, these, these empires come and go, they collapse and then new one, new ones will rise. And I, one of the things I look forward to is breaking out of the chains of the central banking system. You know, the system is broken, let it break. And now we have to, you know, uh, decide what kind of new system and who governs that. I think that was kind of a, a quote Edward Dowd had said, you know, a while or a few weeks ago or a month ago, and I shared that uh, on the channel. <laughs> um, so I'd love to know as you guys um, continue to see you know, the state of the markets, I'll definitely continue listening. Well, I really appreciate um, your time today. Thank you very much for joining. And uh, I guess we will all tune in to this next State of the Markets podcast. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again for the invitation. Thank you for hosting me, uh, Vicky and Jennifer, and uh, to infinity and beyond. Thanks. Take care. Bye. 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 -bye. <laughs>